Hello, welcome to day three of 40 years of the U.S. Department of Education, examining its past, present, and future. As you can probably guess from that subtitle, today we're looking at the future of the Department of Education, uh, talking about what should be done with the U.S. Department of Education as we move forward. Should it uh, stay the same? Should it be changed? Should it be abolished? What should we do with it? Um, I thank everybody who is joining us today. Uh, I am Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute. Um, and uh, I also want to thank our panelists for coming today, and I will invite or I will introduce them to you in a moment. Um, I encourage you today, if you are on the Cato event page for today's webinar, if you scroll down to the bottom, you will see a paper that says right-sizing Fed Ed. Uh, it is a draft of a paper that will be officially released Monday because Monday, May 4th, is the 40th birthday of the U.S. Department of Education. But you can take a look at it now. Uh, and it lays out uh, seven things that the U.S. Department of Education and the federal government do in education and um, uh, itemizes some ways that we can, in the near future, uh, start moving in what the author, myself, and Jonathan Butcher, who's gonna, I'll introduce you to him in a moment, that we think are the way to move uh, federal education policy. Um, just a reminder, we're going to hopefully have a lot of time for question and answer. Please, if you're on Twitter, use hashtag CatoCEF for that. But if you're on YouTube or if you're on our website, you can also, there are places where you can put in questions and they will all make their way to me. And hopefully we'll get to as many as we can uh, and possibly a few that were left over from the previous two days. Also, you can watch uh, the archived uh, previous two episodes right on our webpage and on YouTube. YouTube, and elsewhere. Um, of course, uh, this is, as I've said before, it's kind of a brave new world where we're all sort of running miniature television studios in our basements and our living rooms. If there are technical difficulties, please stand by. Um, we will get them fixed as fast as we can. Uh, and with that, I will introduce our panelists and just note that uh, because there's a little lag in when people speak and when this picks up, I will be calling on people uh, specifically for them to answer questions or to give comments. So it won't quite be totally natural banter and back and forth, but this way we won't all be having verbal gridlock while we try and talk on top of each other. So now our panelists. The first panelist uh, is Representative Rob Bishop from the state of Utah. Um, he is, of course, in the U.S. House of Representatives, but he was also a former high school uh, teacher uh, and so he has many insights, both as a policymaker and as a practitioner on the federal role in education. And then you'll also see Jonathan Butcher. He's the senior policy analyst in the Center for Education Policy Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. And he's the co-editor of a book that I am also in, um, but he and Lindsey Burke did almost all the major work on it. Uh, it's called The Not-So-Great Society, and it's all about the federal role in education. Definitely worth a read. Uh, and then finally, or I should say last, but definitely not least, we have Maria Ferguson, She's the executive director of the Center on Education Policy, 
and former Director of Communication and Outreach Services for the Department of Education's Office of Elementary and Secondary Education. So uh, depending on your vantage point, she has worked for the department or she's been in the belly of the beast. Um, anyway, that all depends on your viewpoint. Maybe we'll tease all that out now. So without further ado, uh, Congressman Bishop, I hand it over to you. Well, hey, thank you. I have appreciated being part of this. I've also appreciated the last two days as I've been listening to him. It's been fascinating. Um, the question that we're supposed to be asking today is obviously, should the Department of Education either remain or be reformed or uh, uh, be abolished? And the answer is obviously yes to all of them. So the first day when you came in there talking about the Department of Education originally established in 1867 by Andrew Johnson, and then the one by Jimmy Carter later on, it was very clear that they were political entities. They were not designed to improve education. And as a policy or a body that was never designed to improve education, they had succeeded very well. Yesterday's panel, you had somebody who had actually written a book about education entitled Failure. That, that complains, that enough said right there. Let me hit a couple of concepts I think are significant for my years, both in Congress as well you know, 18 years in Congress and then 28 years in the classroom. The first one that anyone think, who thinks that just throwing more money uh, will make better education doesn't understand kids and they certainly don't understand money. Secondly, it's been almost 20 years since I was in the classroom. And I'd like to say in that, in that time period, education has improved. I would really like to say it. It's just not true. Uh, in fact, what much has been taking place is a consolidation and a centralization of education policies and procedures. None of it really done by legislation. We're not that crass, but almost all of it done by administrative fiat and administrative rules. And as one of the takeaways from that, as an old teacher, I think the position of teacher has been truly harmed by what we have been doing in the last couple of decades. Um, teachers no longer, like we have a, we have a problem in, in getting teachers, and also in retaining teachers. To get new teachers that are good coming into the system, you gotta pay more money, that's gonna cost. But once they're there, we have a retention problem. I think the last numbers I saw anything from 16 to 25%. And that becomes of the policies that are implemented for the classroom itself. We are testing too much for both kids and teachers. We have taken teachers out of the, out of the curriculum control. We have failed to support them there. We are moving teachers away from being an honored profession into simply facilitators of technology. And especially in this time of the crisis that we are in, uh, it almost emphasizes the role of technology over the interaction that teachers will give. It may be a way of, of guarding against poor teachers in the future, but it also is a way of guaranteeing there will not be that creative teacher in there that will truly inspire creativity and betterment. That has to be there, and it's not coming through. Third, um, we give lip service to a lot of stuff we don't actually believe. Like a lot of my colleagues... <sighs> give lip service to federalism, the 10th Amendment, that kind of stuff. They don't really believe it. Even though they say they are supporting of it, as soon as there is a federal fix for something, they rush to the floor. When I was chairman of the 10th Amendment Caucus, I was always going to the House floor to try and argue against bills that were wonderful ideas. It was just Congress should not be the one trying to establish those ideas. It should be somewhere else. So getting a change or a fix coming from Congress is something I really don't think will happen. 
final thing is, Cato, you guys did a study back, I think, in 1994, in which you said basically 8% of the money that goes into education comes from the federal government. But 40% of all the administrative rules and procedures and regulations that they had to spend their time dealing with on the local level were mandated because of that 8%. This is the other thing that I, I find frustrating. Um, I have members of, of my state will always come to me and say, you know, Rob, you got to do something about deficit. Deficit's horrible. We have to change things here. By the way, there is this one program, though, that we need that really doesn't cost all that much. And it's essential. It gives us the flexibility of doing things we need at the state. In education, that's even worse. They don't really go through the first premise that the, that the uh, deficit is terrible. They just say, we need these programs here at the state. Any congressman or congresswoman who goes through that process and does not end up with mental whiplash is, is asleep at the concept. We have, we're having an election right now in my state, which uh, last week there were 16 candidates in four different parties for governor and 16 for lieutenant governor. And each and every one of them said they wanted to get the federal government out of the classroom. That's lip service. 31 of the 32 had no idea what they were really talking about that, but that is a key element. And if indeed the Department of Education is going to be more efficient in coming up with better education, if indeed we're going to improve education in the future, it has to be the states that get off their butts and take the responsibility of actually doing it. Now, look, we've had in the past, you know, when Race to the Top came there, the effort of states trying to get on the state stabilization fund required them to actually make decisions about things even before the money was allocated. And then they found out the money only went to 14 states in the uh, what else, the Every Student Succeeds Act. It was sold to us as a way of actually trying to take away the mandates for No Child Left Behind and allow states greater flexibility. And states were actually given the right to write their own plans. Unfortunately, their plans had to be based on the policies and the standards that were already implemented. And the Secretary of Education was given a veto of all of that stuff if he or she decided it wasn't in the best interest. Even in that law, there were, there were if, if a parent wanted to opt out and the state had a law that allowed them to opt out that said that had to be honored. But in another portion of the law, every, stu every student had to be tested and it was up to the Secretary of Education to make, even in the CARES Act that we just passed. In an effort to give more flexibility for their funds, they gave the more power to the, the Secretary of Education on how those monies would be dealt and how they would be sent around. So the one thing that's got to change, the one area that has to make a difference is states have to step up. If the states want to come up with a better system, if the states really want to control their education, if they want to have their, the ability of some, having something other than a one-size-fits-all program, the states have to do it. One last thing I want to say in there, I've been as a teacher in every wonder program that was designed on the federal and state level. The only wonder program that was never allowed us to try was freedom, freedom to allow kids to actually do what they want to do when they're third, four, three and four year olds, freedom to let parents actually go where they want to, freedom to allow teachers to have some kind of control on the curriculum in their class, freedoms for schools to do something different. That's the one wonder program I'd like us to try. It's just infusing the system with freedom. And if it's going to happen, the states have got to step up and do it. And so far, they're not. Thank you, Congressman. Um, just a reminder, if you have any questions or comments, please put them into whatever you're on YouTube on our website. You can put them in the comment uh, boxes. And if you're on Twitter, you can use hashtag Cato CEF, and those will eventually get to me. Uh, and with that now, Jonathan, please go ahead. 
Great, and thank you, Neil, and Representative Bishop, thank you for those, those comments. Neil mentioned a paper that we have put together uh, that's available on uh, Cato's page that's attached to these events. I want to tell you a story that uh, we cover in that paper, and it's a story about how this actually plays out when we talk about the need for states to be able to make the choices that are right for their teachers and students. So Arizona enacted a provision a couple of years ago that would have allowed schools and school districts to choose a test, choose an assessment from a menu that the State Board of Education would put together. And the idea here is that this test would um, be, you know, this would be the test that um, uh, satisfies these provisions in federal law that require students to be assessed every year in certain grades and in certain subjects. But the difference here is that instead of one state test, there would be uh, an assortment of them. And now these tests would be comparable to each other. They would be norm referenced. Uh, even the SAT and the ACT are included for high schoolers uh, as a part of this menu. So Arizona wanted to experiment with this idea, right? They wanted to uh, give schools the opportunity to, to look at their curricula, to look at their textbooks, their instructional methods and say, I think we've got a test over here that fits what we're doing better than the state test. And the feds actually sent them a letter and said, no, you can't, you can't do that. And took away the ability of Arizona to decide how they were going to evaluate their students. And this is what we mean here. Uh, we don't just mean the size of the agency, which the you know the previous um, uh, events in this uh, in this series have talked about. Uh, we we don't just mean this issue of increased spending and lower achievement and all of this productivity. All of those are important. All of those are things that need to be talked about again and again. But on a on a pretty practical level here, this is an issue of states finding something that they feel like will work for them, and Washington stepping in and getting in the way of that. And so that's one of the things that's included in the paper that Neil was, was talking about. So what do we do? Uh, where do we go from here and, and what should the future look like? Well, in the, in the paper, um, we talk about a couple of areas that uh, we should look at specifically to, to, uh, to roll back Washington's uh, overreach. Uh, one of those issues is testing. Uh, one of those issues uh, has to do with uh, even this idea of private school choice and, and what students are appropriate or would be appropriate for uh, to be part of a, a school choice program that would come from Washington. For example, Washington D students in Washington, D.C., uh, children living on tribal lands, uh, children in military families. There's reasons in um, you know, either federal law or the tradition of, of uh, what Washington has, has authority over uh, for those students to be a part of such an initiative. But beyond that, I think the most important changes when it comes to school choice are going to come from the states and should. That's where they rightfully should come from. Now, I would say that um, uh, there, there's an important concept when we talk about this idea, which a couple of people have mentioned already pretty quickly here, of abolishing or getting rid of the Department of Education. I think this idea has been dismissed, especially in recent years, as um, a fool's errand or uh, just fantasy. And I think that might be because uh, some proposals don't always take this idea seriously. When we talk about um, doing away with the Department of Education as a, as a cabinet level agency, uh, it should not be taken lightly. It shouldn't be taken as something that can happen in 12 or perhaps even 24 or maybe even 36 months. 
Uh, there have been proposals introduced in Congress over the years, even going back to the 1970s, where uh, Congress would review different programs or even federal agencies. They would evaluate the success of those programs, and then they would set the stage and create a path for those programs to be devolved and the different responsibilities given to other agencies in Washington. And I think that's something that is, is pretty can clearly be done th uh, with the Department of Ed. Um, we'll take, for example, and this is something that Neil has, has talked about and I've, I've heard him say very well, uh, and that has to do with civil rights. I mean, civil rights is unquestionably a vital responsibility of, uh, of the federal government. Um, it's also an important responsibility for education. I mean, considering the historical significance of Brown versus the Board of Education. However, the Department of Education is not the place to do it. The Department of Justice and federal courts, uh, as again, as we, we said in the, in the paper, uh, are the appropriate places to be dealing with, with this issue. And, uh, you know, again, to provide a quick example here, it's too easy for the agency to decide that they can issue a dear colleague letter or some sort of statement that suddenly becomes far more than what the federal government should be responsible for. I think what will come to those that have followed education will come to your mind right away uh, is what happened with the 2014 dear colleague letter that came from the Obama administration dealing with school discipline. And this was a, uh, a letter that um, was telling students, uh, excuse me, telling schools how they should consider discipline and school safety for local schools. And suddenly you have Washington uh, becoming the experts on how schools should take care of their students. And that should come as a concern to uh, families around the country. So uh, when we talk about devolving the department, it is a conversation that we need to have. And it's a conversation that we need to have seriously and one that we need to include um, a, a thorough review of each of the agency's responsibilities and then replacing each of those uh, different offices in other parts of, uh, of the federal government. And it's important. It's important to set where we want to be in 10 years and to have uh, a thoughtful and, uh, and thorough conversation uh, about, uh, about that process. I think if we leave it to, uh, to say, well, this, is, this could never happen. It's too big, too many special interests, or the department is just uh, uh, too embedded in the, pro in, the, uh, in the lives of families, we, we can't get rid of it. Uh, it's not fair, it's not fair to students, not fair to taxpayers, and, uh, and it's not fair, I think, to the protection of the liberties that we so value. Terrific, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, Maria, over to you. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Representative Bishop. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate your comments. Uh, my first comment, I'm going to make three points because I know we want to get into questions. My first point actually touches on a lot of what you both just said. Um, I think it is definitely time for us to move beyond the sort of federal state power struggle that happens. Um, it seems to me in a highly federalized system of education, this relationship has always been um, contentious at best and in the end um, is really not very helpful to the folks in the field. I spend a lot of time in my job talking to people at the state level and the district level, um, looking at the impact of federal programs and how, how they use them. And it seems like this notion of um, states left to their own devices are invariably gonna be do the wrong thing. And therefore we need the federal government to have this um, strong oversight for to ensure equity and accountability. 
Um, it's just not a very nuanced relationship. And, um, and there's this pendulum swinging aspect to it that we've seen certainly over the last 20 years that I think is very stifling to innovation and I don't think really helps people in the long run. Um, in some ways, we've kind of had the perfect um, example of two extremes with the Obama administration where the federal government um, and the department had a pretty heavy footprint and, and exercised a lot of authority. And now with the Trump administration, where you saw a pulling back of that, that kind of swinging back and forth doesn't really, to me, get at the core problem of the relationship that exists between the federal government and states. Um, and it just seems like we're at a very good point right now to be thinking about, okay, is there a way to do this better, to achieve all the goals that we want to achieve, but to, um, to not keep doing this kind of dance between the federal government and what states want to do, because at least from my vantage point, having been in the department and now, you know, certainly outside of it, um, it doesn't really seem to be working um, for anyone in the way that, that we would need it to. Um, the second point I want to make um, focuses on the department itself and the value that the department has, and that's that the bully pulpit does matter. I do think the American people um, look to the Secretary of Education and the department for a sense of leadership and vision about education. Um, and in some ways, I think that the Secretary of Education has um, a more powerful bully pulpit than a lot of other agency heads. Um, I feel like this is an opportunity um, that isn't always utilized in the best way. The Secretary of Education, um, I think, can, can, can do more for education writ large in the country by staying away from politics and focusing more on um, the business of schools and communities and teachers who are trying to do hard work. I think it is comforting to know that there is leadership at the highest levels for education in this country. Um, and the bully pulpit of the department gives us the opportunity to have that. Um, I just think it hasn't always been used most effectively. Um, and then finally, just some points on like the future federal role, because there's been so much conversation over the last two decades on what the appropriate federal role should be, what the department's role should be. Um, and there are a lot of interesting ideas and theories. Jonathan just talked about some of them. I think we have to acknowledge a couple of things. One, that in our highly federalized system of education in this country, education is both personal and it's political. And that makes it um, a very complex endeavor. And um, the department, the way it's structured now, does not really seem to sometimes understand the systems that it's trying to help. Um, two, I think, it's fair to say that as a nation, we've made some important strides in education and educational attainment, but there are still some huge gaps. So I think it's only fair for us to look at the evidence on the table, see where our students are, and then think about if we are gonna have a US Department of Education, how can we retool and re-equip that department to, to, to sort of function where we are now, look in reality where we are now and see what we're doing right and see what we're doing wrong. Um, I think we also have a moment in education uh, right now that's sort of reflective of what's going on in this country. And there's this, uh, a little bit of toxicity in conversations about education right now um, and a sense that, well, we have to do it either this way and not that way and, and groups uh, arguing against each other about what is the best way to go. And um, I don't think anything more than coronavirus could point out to us that we need to be looking towards innovation and in education. Um, it is not the time to be squabbling over, you know, 
these schools are wrong, these schools are right. We need to be helping ourselves create an environment where we can promote in innovation, look at best practices, um, have research-based evidence that's practical and timely that policymakers and education leaders can actually use and not have to wait 20 years for. This is the time to sort of put the politics aside, if you will, and focus on what's really gonna help schools and students. And even though we've all been talking about this for a long time, I can't help but wonder if this situation that we're all going through right now might actually give us an opportunity to, to do more than just talk about this in theory, but actually think about, okay, let's look at the systems that support education in this country and what can we really do to change them to help us meet this challenge and whatever challenges are coming down the line with a little bit more um, practicality and efficiency. Thanks. Great, thank you. Um, so we have a lot of questions and comments in the queue, so I'm gonna get right to those, although I have lots of questions I'd like to ask myself, um, and maybe we'll get to a point where I do that. But um, what I'm gonna do is we'll go in sort of reverse order of how everyone spoke, but still just wait and I'll call on your name. Um, so, uh, and if you have sent a question or comment, uh, I'm gonna try and use your name if you included your name, if not, uh, hopefully you'll recognize the question or comment that you sent. Um, and so the first comes from Rick, um, and it's related to what Maria was just talking about and Congressman Bishop and, um, and Jonathan. Uh, Rick says, in this age of modern technology and information accessibility, shouldn't we move to the freedom that Representative Bishop speaks of? Why the need for the structured approach? And I would sort of frame that also as, is having a U.S. Department of Education almost inherently antithetical to freedom uh, and innovation because you have this view of centralized control? And so we'll start with Maria. Um, I don't think it has to be. Um, I think that there are plenty of other countries in the world that have departments of education um, and, and they don't stifle innovation. I, I just think it's it's how the department is structured and what its aim and intent is and what it's responsible for. You know, the, the details, the work that actually gets done within the department um, is what mattered, is what matters. I, I don't know if the department, the way it functions now, it, it doesn't seem to me to be ideally suited for what our country needs now and is going to need moving forward in terms of education. I think it would be a good time for us to, to dig, in, dig in and really think about, you know, what are the things that we would want out of a federal department of education? And of course that conversation has to start and finish with what's best for states and schools and districts around the country, because ultimately they're the ones that matter, you know, not what happens here. It, the function here should be to serve what's going on in the field. Great, Jonathan. Well, the question makes made me think of the pandemic and the responses to it. I guess that's that's as you were finishing reading that, Neil. I think that's what that came to my mind, and so I think that um, as as excited as I am to see schools move to online instruction, and it's something that I've uh, written about and and said is what should be happening right now. Um, there there is truth that in areas where students don't always have a computer at home or may not have um, even high-speed internet access, and, and they are there. Um, and in some of these, whether they're very rural areas or um, uh, inner city areas, uh, there's a struggle uh, to access it. And can the department help? 
Yes, I mean, it's helped through uh, money, uh, but I would say what the agency did that I, I think really should be applauded were the guidance that they issued early on saying, hey, look, um, you, you schools should try online instruction and not fear that there's going to be some sort of equity or um, IDEA related um, rule that we're going to try to enforce, or you might be punished if you try something that may not work the first time. And I thought I thought that was a great a first step from the agency. Um, you know, nevertheless, though, uh, I think that what's going to come out of the pandemic uh, are examples from states that gave, in these cases, especially schools and districts, the ability to make the best choices about how to how to deliver instruction. Um, evidence of this real quick and then I'll finish is that uh, I feel like the schools, uh, the public schools anyway, that responded the quickest to this move to online instruction were charter schools. I was talking to a charter school in uh, the Philadelphia area, in fact, that said, hey, look, you know, as soon as things started to shut down, we figured out, all right, we're going to start with handing out um, papers and folders and worksheets to get us going. And then we're going to move to uh, devices on online instruction in about a week. And, you know, we're going to, they, they developed a plan and, and went on ahead with it. Now, conversely, uh, news out of Philadelphia was saying that for some district teachers, they were being told by administrators not to, ish, not to uh, teach online or move to online instruction until the district decided what their plan was. And so there was a delay. They, they were being told to stop. I mean, they'd come up with an answer and then they were being told to slow down. And so the more that we can make schools more like charter schools, where there is the flexibility that they have to make decisions for them, and even more so, I think there's even improvements we can make on uh, what charter schools have to do. But the more that we can give this kind of flexibility to schools that they can make decisions in the best interest of their kids. And on top of that, give them guidance saying, okay, you shouldn't fear some sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, repercussions uh, during this uncertain time uh, just for trying something, trying to reach kids, even children with special needs who, uh, who, who require unique services. Just try something, try to reach them right now. Give them that stability that they need during this period. Thanks, uh, Congressman Bishop. Look, your question that talks about if the Department of Education can actually be a help and a facilitator of things taking place, um, I think Marie said it best at first uh, when she simply said, yeah, it could be. The reality is it hasn't been, and I'm very fearful that it won't be in the future. And especially as we go into, when I was complaining about the, the des destruction of, the, of a teacher as a professional, Part of that is there is this mindset going on now that technology is going to solve all these problems and the teacher should not actually be a teacher, but simply a facilitator of the technology. The fear that happens is that once you put greater emphasis on the technology, do you actually make sure that the school system and the teacher and the school, the actual school that has the interface with that kid, do they have control over it? Or are you giving control over to the company that provides the technology and then they also provide the programming for it? That's why the problem I have of seeing a consolidation of curriculum and consolidation of choices is something that supersedes everything else we're trying to do. Yes, it's wonderful to be innovative, but the states have got to do that. It's not going to happen on a federal level. You know, the, the mantra for Common Core was always math is the same in Massachusetts as it is Mississippi, which is true, but the kids aren't. And the role of education should be dealing with the kids 
not necessarily the centralization of the curriculum, centralization of standards, and centralization of assessment vehicles, and not just simply turning a teacher into a facilitator for new kinds of technology. There's, there's a balance has to be there. We haven't had it in the past. I am very fearful we'll have it in the future unless states really, once again, take over the responsibility of being in charge of education. Wednesday, you had somebody once say, as they were talking about the establishment of the Department of Education, that there would be, what did they say? There would be no federal mandates. The federal, no, the federal will mandate nothing unless the states take the money. I think that's probably one of the cues. The control comes with the amount of money. And as you did in your study, and Cato did in 1994, the amount of money is not proportionate to the amount of influence and control and administrative workload that is caused by that kind of money. Thanks, Congressman. That's actually a point we make in our paper, too, about uh, how relatively small the federal contribution is, but how much control they get. Uh, and so this segues right to a question from Fritz. Uh, and maybe, Congressman, I'll go back to you since it picks right up on what you were saying. But um, he says, is there an increase in the state, or if there's an increase in the state role, as there should be, what does it take for the state role to increase? Is it more money, programs, technical assistance? And do states have the staff to do this? And I would say another part of that question is, do states actually have the will to take back control or are they kind of happy to have the federal government tell them what to do? We'll start with you, Congressman. Uh, that last part, I think, was the key element to it. Um, do the states have the will to do it? States ought to have the will to do it. They need to have the will to do it, whether they can or not. It is very easy for the states simply to use those use those words that, hey, we've got to get the feds out of the system, we've got to get more control back here, but they're not really t willing to take the step for doing that. And part of that, once again, comes of the so easy element they have of accessing extra money for their system that they'll be willing to take upon anything the federal government tells them to do afterwards. Like Dick Army once used to say, if you want to get out of the trap, you have to let go of the cheese. States have to let go of the cheese and be willing to step up and actually take control of what they are attempting to do and not so so acquiescent to anything that's coming through by administrative rule or administrative fiat. That's, that's one of the problems. We give a lot of lip service on every level about how states should have control and states should be in charge, but we really don't have a lot of people that are willing to step up and actually do it because it's much more convenient to just keep going along as we come. That's also why I'm, I'm very skeptical that Congress will ever make reforms on its own. Congress will ever devolve power from either the uh, executive branch departments or themselves simply because they don't really have a great appetite to do it. We talk about it, but we don't really do it. So I, I think it's an excellent question. And I think it does evolve down to should, state should do it. Will they do it? That's the key element. So, Maria, is the cheese too delicious for them to let go? And if they did let go, do you think states have the capacity to do whatever it was the federal government had been doing for them? I mean, it's a really thorny question. I totally understand the representative's point about the cheese. Uh, well, well taken there. I think, you know, look, it, it probably in theory makes the most sense for a lot of the leadership to be coming from the state level. The problem is, and and again, having spent a, a lot of time talking to states about how they do policy, federal and otherwise, 
the capacity is just there. It's it's very mixed across the board. There are some states that, you know, are are pretty well staffed. They have people with expertise. We we've met states in recent um, in recent months that actually have their own research infrastructure in the state, so they can practice evidence based policy making. From, with research they create in their state alone, you know these are the, these are the leaders. You know they can really do amazing things. But then there are other states that are underfunded, um, have no staff capacity, but also have enormous needs and sometimes very complicated needs. You know where you have school districts in, in very rural areas that are spread apart and you can't enjoy any economies of scale to to be able to maximize the limited dollars that you have. So it, it would really take, a, I think, a dramatic effort to try and shift things down to the states. I certainly understand the motivation for it. I don't think you can do the kind of work that my organization, CEP, does without seeing how many disconnects there are between federal policy and actual, actual implementation in the state and district and schools. Um, you know, the lines get crossed all over the place. So I, I think that the motivation to think about states leading is, is well-founded. It's just, I think it, it would take a significant undertaking for those states to really you know, create their own cheese, so to speak. You know, they, they need the ability to be able to do that. And that's, that's more complicated than I think it sometimes seems. All right, before I go to Jonathan, uh, Maria, what you just said goes right into another question. So I'm gonna send it right back to you. Uh, this question comes from David and they say, what states does the panel consider to be leaders on K through 12 education? So Maria, what are there a few states that come to mind that are doing a really great job of making their own cheese? I think Massachusetts is always the leader. You know, they're kind of like the Finland of America. Everyone gets really sick of hearing about them, but they've really done some pretty amazing things. Um, you know, California is just, it's, it's so complicated, you know, how they, how they manage the educational needs in that state are, are, you know, amazing to me just because there are so many and it's so complex. I've actually done a lot of research in the state of Utah. Um, my deputy at CEP is from Ogden, Utah. Um, and, you know, there's some really great examples of leaders in Utah. I think you can find, you know, you find state leaders, but then there are also just some remarkable district leaders um, as well. Um, I think, you know, John White is also from Louisiana, who we have to acknowledge there as well. I'm sure the other uh, panelists have their thoughts, too, but those are just some of uh, top of mind. All right, Jonathan, you can answer the original question. You can give us your ideal states, however you want to handle that. Well, sure. Let me just quickly, I'll add something to the previous question. Maybe just put a little more uh, uh, clothing on the um, uh, on this picture here. Uh, and that is when we talk about how much federal money and how it's used in states. In a study that I did a couple of years ago uh, with Education Next, I found that um, just under half, about 40, 41% of the salaries of employees at state departments of education are funded with federal money. So that's that's part of where this federal money goes. It's to pay for the positions in state departments of education who then carry out federal work. And so, uh, you know, it's it may sound trite, but it's it is a bit like, you know, paying people to dig a hole and, and then fill it in. You're you're paying to create the position where they turn around and do the paperwork. Uh, so that's that's a part of the problem uh, with the way that the this arrangement of dealing with federal requirements goes. 
uh, on the second question as to states, uh, you know, policy is is uh, rarely uh, so clear to say that there's a perfect one. I would argue that um, Arizona has done a great job laying the groundwork for a um, a general um, understanding that being able to choose your child's school is just something that we should do. And they do it with public schools. They have a, a very old, uh, op comparatively anyway, open enrollment law where students can choose any public school in the state subject to space. Uh, they have a very robust charter school law uh, with well over 500, close to 600 charter schools in the state, I think at last count, as well as private school choice options such as education savings accounts, tax credit scholarships. And I think that those latter things, I think the private school scholarships in particular, either came out of or grew uh, out of um, a landscape where families just have come to expect it. You just, you get to choose. You get to choose where your child uh, learns. And that's a great perspective to build. Uh, and then just quickly, I would say Florida is also very similar to that. Florida's had great success with uh, private school choice. They have the largest uh, tax credit scholarship programs, a private school scholarship program uh, in the country. Um, and I think, uh, as many will know, Governor Jeb Bush um, had an, a number of reforms uh, over the past, you know, 20 years that he either, um, you know, was a part of or, or was, you know, central to and have carried on since, you know, since his time as governor there in Florida. Um, and so I, I think that I think those two states are places where we can look and say, what does it look like uh, when we give parents the chance to ch decide how and where their child learns? And it begins to settle in and you start to see uh, more changes around you. Uh, and I'll close with this. Uh, things like uh, billboards. Public school districts will buy billboards advertising what they teach because they know the charter school down the road is offering something similar. Um, there are radio ads for private school choice programs. Um, people understand that when you're going to have a serious conversation about uh, public education in Arizona, charter schools are going to be at the table. They're a big part of it there. Uh, they make up 17, 18% at last count of uh, the public school population there. So, you know, that's what it looks like. You know, when you introduce this element of allowing parents to choose, uh, you, you begin to create a mindset. You begin to see, you know, this isn't threatening anyone. This is giving students opportunities, opportunities that weren't there before. And that's what states can do. And that's what Washington hasn't done. You know, these these things that I've just been describing came from states. They did not come from Washington. Congressman, do you have any exemplar states you want to mention? It's okay if you don't, because we got a lot of questions, but yeah. any you want to talk about? No, let me just say this briefly. The question is a good question, but it so shows part of the problem with the question itself. If we start to rank states as to what is good in education, that means we have to have a preconceived notion of what we think is good. And as soon as you do that, all of a sudden, then you start standardizing everything again and start saying, okay, well, states that aren't meeting our preconceived definition of what uh, education should be, they've got to change or they ought to change or they, or we will force them to change in some way, which I think is the antithesis of saying we need more creativity. We need to let people think and come up with things that are outside of the box. So I think we're saying both, all of the panelists, I think are saying all those things, um, which is why it's so difficult to say in something as subjective as, is that good education? Um, actually, I'm sorry, it, it goes back, remember Potter Stewart when he was making a Supreme Court ruling on pornography and he said, I can't define it, I just know it when I see it. To me, it's the same thing with education. I can't define it. I just know it when I see it. 
And if you are not trying to define it, you give more people the opportunity of coming up with something really innovative that you weren't thinking in the first place when you decide to establish your standards. I'm talking about right, the thank you. We have... I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, uh, we have a lot of comments and questions, and uh, there's no way I'm going to get to all of them, but I'm going to go as fast as I can. Uh, this is an interesting one because we talk a lot about policy and administration, and somebody uh, that don't have their name, but they say, so far, comments deal with administrative issues. The nitty-gritty of education deals with cognitive learning. Kids are not being taught basic skills nationwide, for instance, uh, intensive phonics, etc. a time-tested proven method of reading. Comment, please. And I suppose the, the operative part about this is the Department of Education uh, well-situated or poorly situated to get kids the the pedagogy and the the substance of education that they need. Uh, we'll start with Jonathan, because I don't think I've started with you yet. Thank you, Neil. Uh, I think that the, the only way that we're going to, to resolve that is by allowing parents to make choices in their child's best interests. This idea of zip code assignment really needs to be a relic of the past. Um, it's it's e even in, in places that don't have what we would consider to be robust private school choice uh, options, like uh, say, let's take New York, right, or New York City. Even there, right, parents are able to, um, they enter a, a process where they can uh, uh, list their top few schools that they want for their child and then, you know, um, uh, they get placed based on room and, and, and different parts of that equation. Uh, while not perfect, it does sort of begin to take this idea of residential assignment and say, yeah, it's really, we even we realize it's really not uh, the best way to go here. Um, and I, you know, I talked about Arizona and answering the last question. Hey, look, it's not uncommon to find stories in the paper of parents camping out on the sidewalk in front of the school where they want their child to go uh, so that they can be first in line to send, sign their child up for the open enrollment law that I was talking about. So. Um, so that, that's what we've got to do. We've got to let parents make those choices because they know it's best for their child. Um, so no, the U.S. Department of Ed isn't in the best place to facilitate that. And for that matter, either our state departments of education. This is something that, uh, it, it, to the extent at which they need to lift anything that gets in the way of parents being able to make choices for what they see is, uh, is best for their child. Uh, Maria, thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think the department is really should be dictating pedagogy, um, but what I think it can do is it could share resources about best practices or innovations in curriculums that they can then make their choices about. It can share research evidence about um, what approaches there is actual evidence that shows they work versus not. We saw an effort, um, we have with ESSA, this effort to have this built into the school improvement grants of um, evidence-based practice where state departments of education sort of have an approved list of vetted vendors that districts can then choose from in terms of the school improvement approaches that they wanna use. Now, for some people, um, and I think Jonathan would probably disagree with that and that you're giving power to the state departments in that regard to actually make the decision about who are the vendors. But it is sort of this attempt to at least share information and share evidence-based knowledge with districts and then give them a choice about what to take. Um, it seems like, uh, you know, I mean, we, we've, for those of us who lived through the phonics and, and whole reading debate, 
these kinds of choices are very personal and very political. And the idea that the department would take a strong stand on any of them and try and dictate what needs to be done at the state and local level um, seems to be very inconsistent with the, the education system that we have in this country. Thanks, Congressman Bishop. No, I can't add anything to what they've already said. All right, great. So, because we got a lot more questions to get to. So, uh, Justin says on Facebook, uh, why do we need state tests for compliance with federal law? The ACT, SAT, ASVAB, all test readiness for beyond high school. The accepting school or profession or organization can test for exactly what they need rather than some standardized test for state or federal standards. So is there a reason that those tests are or are not sufficient? Uh, and I think we'll go with um, uh, Maria, I think is first. I, at this point, I've lost track of who's going in what order to be fair. So Maria, well, I'll just send it to you. I'll, I'll try and be quick so everyone gets a chance. Uh, I really do think that we're moving into a place with assessment right now where people are starting to think about, okay, what's the true utility of assessments? How do we want to use them? And what are the range of options that we have um, to, to be able to pick from? I think giving people some, some choice about the assessments that they choose to use, um, it, to me, just makes a lot of sense. Um, Districts know their students better than anyone, and there are so many interesting and innovative assessments that are coming out now and that are available now. The idea that you can sort of put together a way to evaluate children comprehensively as opposed to just one singular data point um, seems to me to make sense. Um, you know, they do assessment very differently in other countries in the world, and I don't keep meaning to point to international examples, but it is sometimes very instructive to see how other people in other countries are doing things and then thinking about how you can apply some of the, you know, sort of best practices that they're doing to our own situation here. And um, testing is, is an incredibly contentious issue in this country, and I really don't think that we have it right at this point. So keeping an open mind to a lot of different options and a lot of different tests um, seems to me to be a smart thing to do moving forward. All right, uh, Congressman. I, I think I agree with what Maria said, except assessments is one of the area in which the department and the federal government is starting to, to put their pressure and their input on what states and local, uh, local districts are trying to do. It's a problem area. We test too much. We expect tests to give us more information than it's ever designed to do so. You can, you can write any test you want so any kid can pass it, and you can write any test you want so that any kid can fail it. We are putting too much emphasis on assessments, and it's a way of the federal government, especially the Department of Education, getting more control over the system. We've got to rethink what we're doing there. Jonathan? Well, and I agree with what Maria was saying. I, I think it's been good to see uh, the current administration think about experiments in testing, and they had a, a small pilot program that not many states, I think, until recently uh, have even tried, and that was because it was still limiting things to one test for a state. I, I, I Look, I, I would wager that we should think about it in reverse. Instead of Washington saying, okay, we're going to let you experiment with testing, here's our design for what the experiment should look like, and if you follow that, then we will allow you to experiment. It should be the reverse. States should say, here's what we need, here's how we'd like to assess our students, and then tell Washington that's what, that's what we're going to do. 
um, uh, overall, I think, yes, this idea of um, giving educators the chance to decide how they want to evaluate their students best and then um, choose the assessment or choose the measurement uh, that the educators uh, want to use. Uh, that's that's what we need to, to return back to. I, th I think when we talk about some sort of big, you know, even these um, uh, pilot or, or experiments that the department is uh, is offering, it still sort of suggests that, well, educators don't really know best. They don't really know how to test their students. And we, we've got to get away from that mindset. We have to get away from this mindset that there are experts out there somewhere else that then, well, we should all just kind of, you know, adhere to, right? I mean, these these are our teachers, right? These are our teachers, our families. are These are the folks where we, if you choose to send your child there, you know, you're trusting them that they know what they're doing. And if a parent is unhappy, that's why we need to have these uh, um, uh, options for families to choose to send their child somewhere else. Neil, can I just add uh, one other point? Just something Jonathan said, just pick something in me very quickly. I think what Jonathan's sure. saying is that very consistent with what we hear in the field. We've talked to, I'm thinking about some research we did two years ago and the topic of assessments came up so often and teachers were so frustrated that they didn't have more opportunity to speak up and be involved in how students were being assessed and what assessments were gonna actually help them do their job better. Um, and it was just this consistent theme through the districts and states that we talked to that I do think that that's an important thing to remember when we think about assessments is that they're actually tools for teachers. They really are. They're supposed to be helping teachers do their job better. And when you lose sight of that, for whatever reason, no matter how important, then the assessments are losing a, an important part of the utility. Just wanted to add that little piece. Oh, that's very good. Um, and that gets to a question. Uh, I wish I could get to every question, by the way, because there are a whole bunch of really good ones. Uh, some of them are directed at specific panelists, some not. But since we're talking about teachers a lot, and this is really important, I'm going to get to a question from Rick, uh, where he says, why are teachers singled out among all of the professions for micro-focus regarding being, quote-unquote, unqualified or, quote-unquote, bad at their jobs without consideration for the challenges they face? You know, too many students, violence in schools, et cetera, et cetera. Does the Department of Education or the federal government, has it had any role in uh, maybe, I don't think demonizing is the right term, but sort of blaming teachers, because that's a term we often hear, or not trusting teachers? Does the department feed that? Uh, and we'll start with Congressman Bishop, because I think you actually mentioned it first. Yeah, I think that is happening, right? And we are treating teachers unfairly. We are trying to turn teachers in, into a, from a profession into simply facilitators of technology. We are testing them too much. We're dealing with them too much. Now, the question is legitimate. Part of it is, in my estimation, an effort for the Department of Education to have greater control over the entire system, and it should not be that way. And yes, I do think teaching as a profession is going down because we are putting too many unrealistic standards on what we expect teachers to do and not actually giving teachers then the flexibility to use the strengths that they bring to a system. Whenever you consolidate the common curriculum and the common core and the common assessment attitude, you put a straitjacket on a teacher, whether that teacher, he or she, has the ability of doing something outstanding in an area that's not going to be covered in your curriculum or your assessment. So, yeah, I, I think the role of a teacher has been diminished over the last two decades since I left the classroom, and I don't find that positive at all. Jonathan? 
Well, I, I do think that, um, you know, it's, it's clear that, um, especially in the past few years with the widespread uh, strikes in some of the areas that teachers are upset. Uh, some of these, of course, can be, can be traced back to, to union activity and others, perhaps not so much. Um, but I think that, um, I think it's more this issue of what school districts can do and how they uh, handle finances in particular, that I don't know that teachers um, uh, are looking at the right way sometimes, or at least when it comes to uh, organizing and protesting. This idea that if you go to the state and ask them for uh, more money, that that's the way that you're going to find higher salaries uh, that will last for a long time is is not uh, not the right approach, right? I mean, districts ultimately, by and large, nearly everywhere, are the ones that decide teacher pay. Um, they're central to it. And, uh, you know, you have superintendents and other administrators making six figures, sometimes double, sometimes more what the average teacher makes. Um, not to mention um, what we see time and time again is this issue of uh, fraudulent use of taxpayer money for students. In fact, there's a new uh, movie on HBO called Bad Education about this very issue of the uh, embezzlement of money meant for students. So, you know, I think if teachers are looking for ways to um, to improve their situation, I think having a, a good hard conversation with the, their district administrator is a, is a good place to start. Thanks, Maria. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to answer the, I think the question was about the department. So just going to that point, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that has hurt the profession, especially over the last decade, was the, the whole policy conversation, if you will, about high stakes teacher evaluations. Um, I, I don't disregard the idea that teachers need to be evaluated for performance just like any other professional person. Every, everyone's performance gets evaluated in the working world. But the idea that you would evaluate a single teacher's performance based on a single test score when there are so many other factors that go into the daily life of a child going in and out of school and so many other people who are making decisions that impact that teacher's ability in the classroom. You know, I just have, that has, that never made sense to me. I just do not understand the idea that you would use a sole test score to evaluate a teacher's performance. We happened to do some polling um, of teachers, um, a national teacher poll right around the same time and this was really expressed, but it wasn't expressed so much in the terms of wanting more money. Um, that, that, that did not really come through loud and clear in the poll. It was about respect. And it was about being treated as a professional and teaching as a field being treated as a profession. That was really what we heard most loud and clear from teachers. And I, and I think, you know, we've heard a lot of conversation about this. It's, why is teaching not considered a profession along the lines of some of the other professions that we have in our society? It's almost like uh, treated like a second class profession. And I think that for teachers in the field, this is one of the things that is the most frustrating and why millennials, and again, there's, there's really interesting polling data on this, they don't wanna go into the teaching profession because it is sort of seems like not the kind of job. Everyone criticizes you, everyone blames you for everything. You know, it's, it's a very, very difficult job. So I think the, um, that particular era of the department, it, it did not really help uh, teachers in the long run and I think created a lot of uh, animosity among teachers. 
All right, thank you. We are almost to the end, but I want to sneak in one more question because it's so topical. We're going to do it as a speed round. Um, we're going to go in reverse order of how we started. I'll still call on you, but that means we'll do Maria, Jonathan, Congressman Bishop. But somebody, I don't have their name, they say COVID-19 reveals our extensive need for national involvement in improving education. Does this create opportunities for revolutionary growth in the Department of Education? And I would just qualify that by saying, is this a time where the Department of Education can really shine or is it time we should be worried that it'll take advantage of COVID-19? And again, we're gonna start Maria and we're kind of on a speed round here. Okay, you're killing me. I, I'm an eternal optimist. So I'm going to say it's a great opportunity for the department to shine, but it's going to need to keep shining for some time to really get through this. All right, Jonathan. Yes, the flexibility that was given to schools to move to online instruction was good and it came early and quickly. I also think some of the spending flexibility that's a part of the CARES Act when it comes to Title I spending and things like that, uh, allowing schools to carry money from year to year. So those are good things. Uh, but no, this is not an, a chance where we should ex want or feel like the U.S. Department of Education should grow. Still should be something that states can solve better than Washington can. Thank you, Congressman. It's a frightening opportunity for the federal government to get more control. And it's something that we should be worried about and watch very carefully. Thank you. Well, that really was an excellent speed round. In fact, you all answered all the questions with great efficiency, and I appreciate that. I'm the only one who ever seems to talk too much. Um, I am, though, sorry. We have a whole lot of questions and comments that we just haven't been able to get to. Uh, it turns out that an hour is not a long enough time for any of these sorts of events. So the next one we'll do, maybe we'll do 12 hours per event. Uh, but don't hold your breath for that one. Uh, I wanna thank, first of all, everybody who's joined us today and who has joined us to watch the two previous uh, episodes. All of these you'll be able to see on in the archives at cato.org. Uh, also, I think it'll stay on YouTube and uh, Twitter and Facebook. So watch over and over again. I especially want to thank our panelists today. I thought they all did a really excellent job of illuminating uh, what the future could look like for the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, and I also want to help, uh, thank the folks at Cato who have helped to put all these together. Um, there's a whole lot of technical expertise and organization that goes into putting on these web events to organizing any event. And Cato really has outstanding uh, technical people and conferences department that makes all this uh, happen extremely smoothly. Everybody watching at home has no idea how complicated this is. And I thank you for that. And then the last thing I'd say is don't forget Monday, May 4th is the Department of Education's 40th birthday. We'll officially release our right-sizing Fed Ed uh, paper on that day. And make sure you do something to celebrate or, you know, mark in some way uh, the U.S. Department of Education reaching the age of 40 on Monday. Thank you.